0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Hi, welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. And
0: I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Miss Laura?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm great, too, except my Hoosiers are losing, so oh. I'm glad to have a, dis- a distraction from this very ugly Big Ten beating we're taking.
1: Oh, it seems like yeah. everyone wanted to win this weekend. Um, well, we've Ohio State at
0: home, which was a major uh, upset, and they are yeah. uh, getting their, their um, oh, comeback. Their, what's it called?
1: Mm. I don't know what word you're searching for What's there. The
0: term? They are, we are paying dearly for beating them in Bloomington because they are
1: killing us
0: in Columbus. Yeah, well, oh, I'm well. very sorry what to hear that? that. I'm just fine.
1: <laughs> good, good. And you, how are you? I'm good. We uh, My daughter's cheerleading team won her regional um championship yesterday so we're going to state high school cheerleading uh, championship contest whatever you want to call it in February so that was great And my boys have been home from UK they came home yesterday and are home until tomorrow so I've been doing lots of cooking and laundry so lots of mom stuff this weekend
0: oh boy <laughs> they figured out how to get their laundry done already huh
1: <laughs> <laughs> well you know I will go into this on on the show, but there are, you know, Tyler's eczema. I can't use public uh, laundry oh. facility.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's. I think that's great. They have to come home. That's a good reason to come home. Okay. Well, yeah, I think so. Good. All right, let's move on to talk with tonight's show. We are continuing to talk about the article I put on my website at com for the new year, which is resolutions for therapists who work with young children, and last week we got through number one and number two. Number one, I will have fun in my sessions, and again, we're not going to rehash all this, but we just talked about how being playful and being exciting to be with really makes a huge difference when working with very young children, because it it negates all of those other challenges you might have with behavior or with a personality difference maybe, and it just eliminates a lot of those things that seem to be problematic for therapists who aren't as fun. And so we talked about that being the the backbone of our sessions and how we like to talk to therapists about that and talk to parents about that and how, again, that going in with an attitude of not only am I, is this kid going to enjoy our time together, I'm going to enjoy it too, and how it really sets the stage for lots of positive things to happen. So we talked about that a lot. Kate, do you have anything that you wanted to summarize about having fun that we didn't say last week? Well, no, the only thing I
0: think I might add as a little addition to that is um, I think that fun oftentimes is the difference between um, a successful session and a not terribly successful productive or successful session and that oftentimes when I hear parents talk about what other therapists are doing or not doing, oftentimes it's not necessarily what they do, but it's how they do it. And I think that fun piece is what's Nine times out of it's ten, it's kind of Mhm. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. yeah <laughs> it's the that's house. the how. Because you can play this? potato heads and be boring or be fun. You can right. play. You can. You can. I've seen people blow it with to, with toys that are inherently more fun, like bubbles or balloons. I've seen adults really blow it with something that's pretty darn easy to be fun with. Right. Um So again, that's a really great point that we want to make sure that we've talked about is that, it, that it's the how that we do anything. And I, I think I could have fun blowing a dust bunny across the floor. Don't you? I have think I dust could, thing? too. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And yeah. sometimes it's the most bizarre, random, you know, circumstantial thing that gets everybody going or intrigues the kid right. and the therapist. But I do think a lot of times with therapists they make the mistake of thinking – if I use a good toy, or if I, you know, they hear bubbles or balloons, or the, and they think, oh, well, I'll try that, but they don't necessarily alter the way they approach it and the way they respond to it, um, right. the way they present it, and then it's kind of like, hmm. And I'm, you know, I certainly have days when I have to remind myself as I'm, you know, kind of flailing or failing in the trenches with a kid, why Why is this not, why is he not with me? Why is he not responding the way I want him to? And, you know, more often than not, it's really my delivery and it's my, my I, attitude towards it. And if I am able to make a switch in how I present it and how I respond to it, kids generally do follow suit. If you're tired uh-huh. and lumpy and low energy, they don't expect much of a response. But if you're hooting and hollering and having fun and laughing and, being goofy and being exaggerated and being you know overly responsive and all of those big responses that we like to use to effectively deliver things lo and behold hey they follow suit you know <laughs> exactly
1: exactly it really
0: works
1: yeah yeah and the same thing with number 2 the second resolution is i will be warm affectionate and approachable during sessions and again this is very opposite from being boring or being not connected with a kid during sessions and if you were just going through the motions no wonder children get bored or no wonder they want to blow you off or sometimes too the other end of that but that we are being so demanding and so um mean sometimes <laughs> with young children or when they are strict, not doing or yeah. you know just Rigid or rigid, yeah, that would, yeah. might be a better word. Mm-hmm. And no wonder a two-year-old who's having developmental issues doesn't want to play with you. And l- take a look at his mother's face when you're when that's happening. He, pro- she probably isn't enjoying your delivery too much either. Although sometimes I've had mothers who were so heavy-handed with. Discipline and behavior, and we're going to talk about all but both of those things tonight. That um, they, you know, I was having you really say, hey, let's lighten up. This is supposed to be fun for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. you want to make sure, again, when you think about going in and just exuding warmth and acceptance, and we talked about last week how important it is to be physically affectionate. And even though some people might get uncomfortable with that and think, oh, that's not professional. We're working with babies. And so many times to get that initial social connection going and that initial emotional connection going, it really does involve some physical contact. And lots of us are, because we love babies and are drawn to this career anyway, we naturally hold children and naturally act like that anyway, even in, you know, you could see... Uh, a person like that in the grocery store, or you know, with another child that who they're not working with in a professional capacity, but it's just how they interact with young children, and and so for those of us who who have difficulty with that, we need to make that a more normal, expected part or routine part of our demeanors during sessions, and we talked about how that has such a positive impact on children and their parents. And, again, we want parents to know that we love our jobs and that we love what we do and that we value their children and we are meeting them where they are and that we're not being judgmental or condescending or all those other things. And so the whole warmth, affection, and approachable it goes for both in how we deal with our little clients and how we deal with their families, and so or their caregivers, or you know whoever else is there during therapy sessions. Sometimes it's siblings, and we have to dig deep to find reasons to really want to enjoy those brothers and sisters <laughs> <laughs> because they're hard <laughs> to to you know. Sometimes we want to shoot them out of the room, but it's not always. Sometimes you can't work that out, they have to be there, so we have to find ways to lovingly and um, warmly involve those all those different people and all this and it's not just the child that's your client it's really a whole family and so when you start to think about that it does open up again it's harder to do and but it does open up some other opportunities for training you know when parents feel like you're on their side and you're there to help them it's that you're giving them ideas and suggestions not really lecturing about what they should or shouldn't do or They somehow, and this leads right into what we're going to talk about next, our third resolution is I will stop blaming parents for developmental issues. And so many times as therapists we do this, and sometimes we don't even, I think that people just unconsciously kind of go there where they say, well, if this mom weren't so uh if she had a little bit more communicative if she made the communicative demands the kid had to demand more this kid would already be talking or if she were a little more strict or had a better schedule in this home this child would communicate a little better you know lots of times we'll get emails here on the show or conversations that I have with therapists when I do conferences, or even just in our in our daily professional lives when we're talking about a child with another professional who's serving on his team, one person will say, "Well, I really blame the parents," or "I really think that this is related to parenting." That happens a lot. Don't you hear that a lot, Kate?
0: I really do. I I get called in on a fair number of those cases where, you know, a child may be being seen by a speech therapist, an occupational therapist, or some combination thereof, and things aren't going particularly well. The child's really not participating is usually the biggest issue. They're running around. they're, They're blowing them off. They're just really not um, performing the way everybody would like for them to, and they say maybe we can get a DI in here. She she works on play and she works on behavior some, and um, and and I think it happens a whole lot. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that parenting certain does not have an effect on a child's behavior. On the other hand, I think that. Um, you know, if we're going in there with toys and doing our darndest to be fun and we're still having some issues with a kid, probably those those issues are inherent in that child. I mean, we see kids right. who do not attend well, do not focus well, do not have typical social skills, do not have typical receptive and expressive language skills. They have issues, whatever that combination might be. And it does sometimes... um I think it's counterproductive. I mean, not that we can't mm-hmm. sometimes ha- be helpful with parents and maybe more effective strategies to deal with their children, but to point the finger at the parent, I think, is in a way kind of absolving ourselves of what we can do to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I not only better with the parenting situation, but better just within our individual therapy session. Um Right. You know, I'm not like I said. I'm not saying that parenting isn't important. It doesn't have some effect, but if we get kind of, it's kind I of, I don't think escape. it's the it's main
1: reason. Yeah, it's no. not the reason really that we're there. I mean, that kid probably would have had that developmental issue regardless, and, and right. especially in the United States. And you know, at com I have so many readers who are not from. Um, The states. And so there, I know that I get emails and comments on the website all the time from families that are really in dire situations. And sometimes it's not even these families, it's the professionals that are working with them. And we're not really talking about that kind of thing. We're talking, we're mostly talking about now things, again, that would have to do that are more. Let's see, what am I trying to say? I'm not really talking about the environments here that are so horrendous that we would want a child to be anywhere but there because we certainly have worked in homes like that where there have been situations of abuse or situations of severe neglect. We're not talking about those kinds of situations because certainly that is very detrimental to a child's development. We're talking about just kind of the, the you know, 99% of our cases where something, you know, mom may not be doing 100, you know, her best 100% of the time. And actually, who really is? I mean, that's a whole other topic. But we're talking about, again, where a kid might be busy or distracted or we think he's just not listening from a behavioral standpoint because he's never had um, demands put on him like that. Or we might say, well, no wonder he's not talking because mom has never – never made him talk or made him request anything, all those kinds of things.
0: That's one that, I hear a whole lot. Yeah. That's really yeah, blaming the parents. And I think yeah. that is really uh for lack of a better term, a bunch of malarkey. I really don't yeah. think that children I was gonna don't say talk. a crock,
1: so there you go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would go with malarkey on that. Yeah, <laughs> I think that typically developing kids talk. And you Regardless can't help to have of their them
1: circumstances, talk. yeah.
0: Right. And, and I hear that one a lot. If mom would quit saying everything for him, he would talk. And I yeah. think, well, I said a lot for my kids, and they talked right around it. I mean, yeah, I just talked really right don't.
1: back. Yeah, that's
0: right. They told me where I was wrong. That's for sure. I right.
1: And, but think... this. Go ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead.
0: Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, I've heard that a lot of times with kids who were, a lot of times, honestly, in the end or ultimately, I think they're apraxic. These are kids who are pretty smart. They're pretty, um, you know, receptive skills skills are pretty good. Their play school skills are pretty good. And so all of those pieces that go into whether or not a child is ready to talk are pretty much there but they're not right. talking. And I think, how could you think that? I mean, this kid has right. all the building blocks of talking, and yet he or she is not talking. That should be a pretty obvious sign to you that something is really not right with the talking, right. and it's not that somebody's giving them words or being too responsive or, you know, those are the things. And yeah. I think that just really kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. You it doesn't make a lot of that, sense. No. To me it's obvious yeah. that that same child, if all those things are coming along nicely, minus the the expressive skills, there's something clearly wrong, or this child would be talking, and you, you can watch him <laughs> yeah. and see. So.
1: Well, and a lot of times, too, people will say this with kids with the receptive skills missing as well or receptive delays, and they'll say, Mom or Dad just don't talk to him enough. Right. And, you know, really... <laughs> granted all children have to hear language to be able to use language however in most homes they are go they're hearing enough language it may not be as simplistic as we would like it to be or as child directed as we would like it to be but the truth is if that kid were typically developing he would be talking and the greatest example that i always use in conferences and this is where i see a lot of kind of light bulbs go off for therapists is when i say haven't you had a kid that you really thought oh my goodness parenting is a big part of the problem yet he might have an older sibling or two or even a younger sibling or two who are doing just fine and so Mm -hmm. same environment you know, same for, you know, whether that's good or bad, and same parents, same behavioral expectations generally, yet there's a kid who's not coming along you know that can that's not about parenting that's about the way he's wired and a lot of times we're working again with a two two and a half almost three-year-old little boy and 14 month old 16 month old 18 month old baby sister is lapping him in terms mm-hmm. of communicative <laughs> development or uh-huh. cognition you know and we're doing our best to get the two and a half year old to you know, whatever we're working on, we're saying, you know, show me more or tell me cracker, and the baby pipes up and says it. I mean, we have laughed about that over the years a lot, Kate, with how we're working with the sibling and the baby. You know, yeah, again. and we're over thinking or corner. even
0: almost saying,
1: <laughs> shh, <Quit>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: It, it gets almost embarrassing for the one you're working with. I mean, you know, it just kind of breaks your heart right. because you're working so yeah. hard with the one
1: yeah and the one that
0: you're trying and, to pretty much ignore is giving you everything that you're not always right. getting from the one you're working with, yeah, it's right, you know.
1: and so that's when you really know, oh my goodness, this is just how this kid is wired and you know, and I know a lot of people don't like for me to use that example, you know and but I really. Can't say you know is, you know neurological difference, biological difference, whatever term you want to use, but it's just how he came into this world, and it's not that we you, we can't make a difference from that initial whatever we have to work with. We certainly can. I mean, that's fine. We are all employed in this field of working with children and you know the whole therapeutic process however you really do have to look at kind of the underlying thing and for most of our children 90 again I'm going to say you know 99.5 percent it's not related to parenting (laughs) and so we need to just throw that out and again our point is environment is important in that we can use things to make it better but it most of the time it is not what's created the problem and again therapists I think haven't really thought about that or they would have come to this conclusion themselves they would have realized oh my goodness that's not the reason that that I'm here that this that can't explain it because again you see it time and time again where children, um, you know, and well, okay, you see it a lot where there are other children who are in those same circumstances or worse, and developmentally they're coming along. Now, are that would they have? you know, could they have been put with a different set of parents in a different set of circumstances and really blossomed? Absolutely. I mean, you can certainly see that as well. I'm thinking of a little girl that I worked with last year uh, who was placed in a foster family situation, and I saw her, and she did terrific with a new set of parents, but her... I mean, she was starting out in a different set of situations where she was completely ignored. And, again, we're not talking about those kinds of situations. We're talking about just kind of an average home. And, again, one thing that we talked about last week, the children whose parents have called and gotten services started are light years ahead of the parents who didn't even do that. So when you're in a home, we need to kind of knock down the whole um, judgmental aspect because if they did one thing right. They know their kid needed help, and and you were there. Um right. So we need to cut parents a break on this and stop blaming um, parenting styles for developmental issues. And essentially, that's what we're doing when we're saying no. You know, th- there are no communicative demands in this situation, or you know, whatever. You're basically saying with a different set of parents, this kid would not have a problem. And most of the time that just simply is not true. The kid would have a problem regardless of who he lived with because that problem is just he he is just the way it is. It's just the way he's wired. And again, not that therapists therapist.
0: sometimes sorry, Laura. Oh, go ahead. I even hear therapists sometimes say this about kids who are to me quite obviously on the spectrum. Right. And and again I think The worst parent in the world couldn't create a child. You couldn't cause a child to behave this way. I mean, you know, some of the behaviors and things. It's like, uh, and again, oftentimes they have siblings who are typically developing. Right. You want to say, well, why didn't it do that? You know, why wasn't that the effect on the other? It's truly environment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think and that comes not, up a lot when there are, like, behavioral problems more than anything. That or the kid who is smart, who is, you know, everything looks good except not talking, that's another time that, that therapists will use that one. Like, well, what I'm doing isn't getting them to talk, and they're not talking for the parents. You know, my answer to that is um, if he could talk if he wanted to and it's all about the parents' behavior, why isn't he talking at any other time? You know, these are, like, right. nonverbal
1: kids. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Why, when he goes to grandmothers, who is phenomenal, yeah. you know, why isn't he talking over there? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And so that that whole argument just is not valid to me at all. And, again, that's not to say that environment doesn't play a role in who all of us turned out turn out to be. It does. But it is not the reason children have developmental delays and so we need to stop blaming parents for that and if if a parent is listening and you've been feeling really guilty about that because of something even maybe you've even internalized that maybe nobody has even said that to you directly you've just somehow come to that conclusion stop (laughs) you know stop feeling guilty use all of that energy you know pour pour all of that into helping your child get better and into and and again, you know environment matters in that we put strategies in place, we change how we talk to children, we change the input so that they can have different output, we change our expectations we you know we change lots and lots of things, and that can certainly make it better, but it is not the sole reason that a child is um struggling developmentally and I see when I have that kind of discussion with parents when a mom will say that to me so many times it looks like the weight of the world lifts from her shoulders when I will look at a mom dead straight in the face and say this is not your fault and so many times mothers have never heard anybody say that directly to them and it just feels like (laughs) you know that moment where they think oh my gosh really You know, it's it's just a whole change for them because, again, it looks like they have just come out from under a huge cloud of thinking, what have I done to my kid to make it this way? Surely on some level I did this. And when they stop blaming themselves, then they can move forward and do the things that are that we know are helpful. So I think it's huge. And I think any therapist listening, that you have mothers that feel like that and have a tendency to feel guilty, and it's always those really great mommies.
0: I was going to say, seems, Laura, it's yeah. been among my best mommies who internalize it and feel the guilt yeah. and feel like they yeah. didn't do. And I always kind of try and express to them, you know what? They'll say, this comes up particularly in the beginning when you're saying, does he know his body parts? Does he right. point to things in in books? Does he, you know, your boom, 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 mm-hmm. kind of bombarding them with specific questions. And they say, well, he knows his eyes, but really that's really all, all I've really worked on. Or, yeah. um, well... He he really doesn't like books very much, so he doesn't necessarily really want to sit and listen to books. But I don't try as hard as I should. I really should read to him more. Yeah, and and, moms
1: will say, it's my fault that he doesn't know that because I haven't taught him. Right. And, you know, you do just want to say, sweetheart, typically developing kids don't have to be taught this. They just, by the process of having that information told to them, get it. They just pick it up in normal, everyday life. It's not that mom didn't do a great job teaching. It's that they are not learning in the way and developing in the way that we would expect them to. And so we have to have more specialized techniques because typically developing children really don't need much to learn language other than hear it and people talk to them occasionally. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't even have to be 24-7 for those for a kid who's, again, typically developing, it just is going to happen. And so we know when that process is disrupted, it's not been environmental. It's been because biologically, neurologically, again, whatever term you want to use, it, it something has, has happened in that process. And so we do have to really alleviate that guilt for parents. And you're exactly right, Kate, it is with those moms <laughs> You know, and it's almost more. And we've talked about this on the show before. It's almost in their minds more. Accept it's easier for them to accept that they've done something wrong rather than something could really be wrong with my kid. Right. And so I, yeah, I think that it's easier for them to kind of accept that blame rather than you know there's something just inherently not working like we would want it to work. And so we have to really, as therapists, be careful that we talk to parents about that and so that we tell them really straightforwardly, you know, this is not something that you've done to cause this. Um, this is not something that you haven't done that's made him not understand and use words like he would want to. You know, this is something that's happened and this is something that we can... Work on, but this is not your fault, and it's very, very liberating for so many parents to hear that and have someone say that to them out loud and and boy, doesn't that go a long way in establishing a good relationship with a mom <laughs> as a therapist when you when you tell her that, and she you know she naturally needed to hear it, but you've you've done such a you know you've uh, <laughs> gotten weeks further down the road with establishing your relationship with her because she automatically feels like, you know, this lady's not blaming me. She's accepting me. She's giving me, you know, validation. Kate, I'm talking more like you with your psychology background, (laughs) but it's the truth. I mean, they do, you you really get to go... you know, it's uh, it's huge for a mom to hear, and you really have forged a nice beginning of your professional relationship with her when you say that up front so that you're on the same page about that. Right. Okay. All right. Um. Anything else about that one? We're going to stop blaming parents for developmental issues.
0: Not that we're not going to make suggestions and hope beyond hope that they're going to follow through on them because there are things they can do to help them, but when kids are typically developing, it just really, as you said, doesn't take that much concerted effort to have a kid be at, you know, at a very near age level developmentally. I mean, already the norms we use are skewed a little bit low, so really... You know, if they're having to work the way that, Lord knows that, we work on body parts and we work on receptive language skills and we work on all those, you know, play skills. And But if everything were coming along typically, we wouldn't really have to work on them. Kids are very um, responsive to, you know, just little bits of attention in that direction. And I always say to parents, don't beat yourself up he didn't show right. any interest and he really wasn't very responsive and that's the truth right. when kids are struggling with those things you can point to your eye and your nose all day long and you know it doesn't mean they're going to get it um, right so you know i it's sad when you hear parents you know I, we all feel responsible for our children's development but when they're really internalizing basically they're saying if i'd been a better mother my right. child wouldn't have these problems, and the truth is, they probably, almost for sure, would still have those problems, whether exactly. they've given those things more attention or not. So it's very sad, and I do yeah. think it's very important. And I do hear therapists sometimes mm, kind of using that as as their rationale. Well, and you know, sometimes it is true that the cases they're saying it about. Is the mother the most responsive, the most focused? No, but if that kid had been typically developing, he would know his eyes and his nose and his mouth, It's right. not from anything from watching Elmo or Sesame Street yeah. or Blue's <laughs> Clues or Barney or, you know, I mean.
1: Yeah, it and, would have happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and so the bottom line here is we cannot make a parent feel guilty about a problem they can or can you know a problem they cannot control. And most of the time these developmental delays and disorders that we're working with with children in our birth to 3 programs, parents cannot control that problem. They didn't cause it and they really they can help make it better with the strategies that we put it in, but had that child been born to a different family, it probably still you know, if the child had been wired the same way, and I know now people are going to say, well, if they were born to a different family, you wouldn't have the same genes. That doesn't even make sense, but you know what I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: you know what I'm That same child point in is. a different yeah.
0: environment, that same child in a different environment would still have developmental issues, you know, right. that's the thing. Yes. so.
1: Yeah, and we see children all the time, I, you know, um, used to joke a long time ago, Kate, when i you know, you would, you know, we would have that joke about speech therapists speech therapist to the stars, because I had so many doctors and lawyers and therapists, children on my caseloads, and really families in high socioeconomics. I mean, the worst house that I would visit in a day would be the one that I left and came home to. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were right, <laughs> really, really well educated and very bear- lots and tons of resources financially yet their kids still had developmental issues. And so it's not for lack of education or for lack of knowing, you know, how to parent. Or And, again, this could, you know, we could go down a whole different trail with this, that sometimes formal education does not equal the same as mommy education. But at the same time, it doesn't matter. You know, a developmental, those are parents who provided all of the, you know, the necessities for life and knew to talk to their kids and knew and had developmentally appropriate toys and you know, all those things that we want to have in place that we say, you know, a language enriched environment, that's all there but the kids still had developmental delays. So we have to really, really stop blaming parents for that and and not use parenting as kind of the catch all as as why the child is delayed. Because certainly we see it across those socioeconomic lines and across the whole gamut. I mean, it doesn't It doesn't matter. It's just what the child came into the world, uh, again, how he's wired is, is the cause of that, not environment. Okay. And here's so a, we, okay, go ahead. Well, the only thing, I have one more little <laughs> attachment.
0: I think the thing that bothers me about that is when I hear a therapist doing that, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, really what they're saying is um, I'm not having very productive sessions, and I think it's because the mom's not a better mother. She hasn't set the stage for appropriate discipline. She hasn't, you know, paid enough attention right. to this child. Fill in the blank. But for whatever reason, right. she, you know, they're passing the buck. And they're passing the buck because they don't feel like their sessions are as productive as they might be or as constructive or positive. And, so, and that's the part, that's, I think, why that excuse inherently, I think it sets a negative stage for communicating with the parent in the first mm-hmm. place. But beyond that, I hear therapists using that sometimes when their sessions aren't really going terribly well. And their their excuse, if you will, is to say, well, this mother doesn't really mother but very. It's usually the mother because even right. today, usually it's the mother who's in the trenches. Right. And they say, well, if Mom fill in the blank paid more attention, disciplined him, was more responsive, whatever, quit talking for him so much, you know, da 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 da. Uh, these sessions would be more productive. And I, and I guess that's the part that, as a therapist, I mm-hmm. think well. Whether you think this mother is doing a great job parenting or not, um, it doesn't change that this is the child you see for this hour, this week, and you you need to do figure out what you can do in your you know in your one hour, so that is going to help him be more responsive and more receptive to what you're doing, and passing the buck and saying that really this is a parenting issue is a lot of times I hear therapists using that in in a way that basically they're absolving themselves of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the part that I think, well, whatever you think about the parenting, and sometimes I, I think maybe they even have some bit of a valid point. Mom could be more right. responsive. Mom could be sure. more, you know, predictable on her disciplining or more in the moment with her children or whatever. But doesn't change the fact that it's your duty to be there for an hour and get the most you can get from that kid and help the mom to continue to improve on her parenting skills and and, and her ability to deal with this particular child. And if we're saying, well, gee, this problem is really a parenting problem, therefore it's not such a big deal or it's not really my problem or it's not my fault, or it's not my responsibility to change what I need to change because, you know, that's the part that I think, well, no, you know, whatever you think, and even if you have a valid point about the parenting, it really doesn't absolve you of having to tweak what you can tweak. I don't know. I One of my mantras from early on has always been, what can I do? What can I do to right. make this hour better? Right. What can I do to mm-hmm. make this kid more responsive? What can I do? Because I feel like at the end of the day, uh, more often than not, that's what we can change. That's what we can have an effect exactly. on.
1: That's really all you can control when it comes mm-hmm. down to it. And that is the number one thing we need to be doing any something is not going well with us in a therapy session. We can't always start with changing the child or changing the parent or changing many other things beyond, I've got to change me to make the situation work and so I love that point with with thinking about that and with you know even even if you do have some concerns about parenting that just that gives you a new direction in which to go (laughs) so that you make sure that if that is part of in your opinion what's going on you you your your session, your therapy strategies need you need to be showing mom different ways to handle things and giving mom more tools and giving her different ways to do it. A lot of times I think the best thing that I do for families is teach moms and dads how to really play and how to really make language meaningful and fun enough so that their kids start to get it and then when they see me do that in the session then they are able to duplicate those activities and to really think oh my gosh I really need to play with her more one-on-one and get down on the floor I don't need to be so busy with cooking and cleaning and my email and my phone and texting and blah 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 you know whatever the distractions are you know I need to at least make sure some of the time I'm more engaged with her And so especially if you think that it's a big parenting problem that mom is, you know, again, we've given lots of different examples of what the issue could be, show her a different way to do it. And you can't really mandate that. You can't really change what she does all the other hours in the week that you're not there. But during your one hour, you can show her how another way, a a different way to approach things. And so again, I think I love that point about you know what can I do right now in my one hour to make this better, and and I think that's I think that's a great 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 lesson for all of us to really think about with parents, and um, so and so that we're really really thinking about developmental issues. In the way that they should be, and that this is not a parenting issue, but if parenting is playing some kind, it does have some kind of contributing factor here. What can I do to make that better for this kid and for the mom? Because on some well, and level, <laughs> go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say that sometimes having a productive, positive session where a child is able to perform, even if it's on a relatively low level. You know, a kid who's on the spectrum is able to engage with you and play with the toy functionally. A kid who doesn't normally seem to respond to language much at all all of a sudden is following some simple commands. A kid who is nonverbal pops out a couple words. When they see those successes, boy, you have a lot better ground to stand on when you're selling, Mm -hmm. you know, look what works. Look what you could be doing. Let's talk about this because they've seen well, she has a clue because it's hard to make that pitch if you're not successful with the kid in your one hour. You know what I mean? Right. And I hear yeah. that a lot too, where they're—I mean, parents will tell me, "Well, she says I should do this or this and this," but really, he doesn't really do much of anything for her during the hour. You know? So I think they right. think, "Well, I'm not Why sure am I gonna she listen knows to her? what she's talking about." Yeah, because right. <laughs> not even working for her. So right. I just, you know, think, "Well," Think what you may, and sometimes there are some valid points too. Could this be a healthier environment? Yes, it could, but it is what is. And if you want to affect a positive change in that regard, then then have a good hour because the parent is going to be much more responsive to you if they see, boy, when so and so comes here, fill in the blank, he's heavy and he's playing and he's really paying attention and. You know, he's trying. And so when and mom,
1: yeah, and when mom says that to you, you say, okay, let's talk about what makes it better. Let's talk about what we're doing here during this hour that seems that he seems to be getting it better. What's different? And then when you start to help mom walk through that process, well, you're paying a lot of attention to, uh, a lot of attention to him and you're really happy and you're really having a good time when you're playing with him and he's not doing you know acting up you know whatever they want to call it they start to look at that and you can have avenues to talk to them about what they can do differently too and so beginning with that good hour that's your launching point that's how you can say This is what you could do differently to make other hours of the week (laughs) as pleasant as this. And sometimes you'll have a pushback. You know, Mom will say, well, I'm not going to be able to sit down on the floor and play with him like this, you know, all day, every day. And you say, yeah, I'm not able to do that. I wouldn't be able to do that either if I had your responsibilities. But let's talk about... When you could do that, and if you can make that a regular part of your routine, don't you think some of these other things that he's doing are going to end up better? And so it is a good starting point, so that you even even from the even from the perspective of I'm giving this kid more, you know, we're helping him achieve more skills. He's getting you know mastery in areas that he's never known before. You know, he's climbing up that developmental ladder. You're still probably able to show mom she can watch your successes and you're able to use that to talk about as a starting point for your conversations with what she can be doing to carry over that success and I think that's huge with uh, therapists who are Going into children's homes, you know, we have to be we have to be demonstrating, we have to be modeling the strategies. I'm not a hands off therapist where I'm just gonna go in and just be consultative and just talk, talk, talk to mom till I'm blue in the face and until she can't stand the sight of me anymore. I'm still working with kids and showing mom what to do and showing her how to do it and then taking that next step and teaching her how to do it and talking about ways that she can incorporate those same kinds of strategies into all the other hours of the week when you're not there. But it's it does start with having a good hour and having something to talk about <laughs> so that you are you have some credibility and so that they believe you when you say, Listen, if you are more fun, he's gonna wanna play with you more. If you are you know, if you can be just a little bit more animated, he's going to listen to you better. And so those are the kinds of things that you that moms believe you when they see you do it versus you just talking about it when you haven't been successful in the first place with their kid. That's why the whole consultative model is just understand the premise that, you know, we need to be educating parents and using the tools in the kid's environment, blah, 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 blah. But if you aren't really showing a parent first how to do it, they might as well be reading a magazine article or something else because they're not, they're not seeing it firsthand, and so many of us are hands-on learners. We don't know how to do it just from somebody telling us. We actually have to watch it and then talk about it and then do it before we're successful with that. Well, and
0: Laura, as we said um, from the get-go, we don't necessarily, sometimes the kids we uh, see for Therapy are relatively what I refer to as easy children. You know, they do like to play. They are socially responsive. Obviously, they have some sort of a delay. But more often than not, the kids we see are not necessarily kids who sit and play very well. They're not kids who who uh respond to language typically or have receptive skills that are at age level. They are kids who are delayed, and those things are not necessarily easy for them. And sometimes we have to figure out what works by figuring it out in the trenches and by that I mean by doing it.
1: Trial and and error. Yeah.
0: Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, although we think that your techniques are great, they don't all work with all children. Uh -uh. And so it really yeah, the more difficult the more delayed or affected a child is the more experimentation it takes to figure out what particular thing is going to get this kid, what toys is he going to like, how do I need to approach him to hold his attention, what does he respond, you know, we have our techniques, but some of it is really specific to each individual child, and we're figuring out as we go. Even though we like to think we know what we're doing, it's like, well, it worked with the last kid, but he could care less about this, so that's an and it. that's
1: what makes it yeah, and but that's what makes this job so exciting is that right. you don't just have a cookie cutter approach, and not all kids are the same, and that's why you know again, sometimes those kids who aren't the easy ones who that you can figure out and they start to make your make progress that's when you feel the most fulfilled professionally. Because you think, gosh, I really had to think here and really had to, you know, again, it didn't all work like magic. Dig deep to get the. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it worked. And that's when you feel really, really good about yourself and good about the information that you're able to share with families is when you see successes like that. And, again, sometimes when when therapists are talking about kids and families like that, you want to say, you realize that this kid is not normal, right? (laughs) You realize there's a reason you're there. Because if they were going to be easy and charming and delightful and everything, you know, again, would just kind of come like clockwork, they wouldn't need you. You would be slapped out of a job. You wouldn't have any children to see <laughs> if it were all going to be that simple. So you have to really um, think I about that.
0: I do think that. sometimes therapists—I okay. don't know if I want to say they forget it, but they fail to factor that in when they're pointing yeah. the finger at the parents. There's
1: a reason you're there. Yeah, yeah <laughs>
0: these are not typical <laughs> kids, and I do think sometimes when they're blaming the parents. And I've even said to therapists, you know, when you're having that quiet uh, private conversation and they're saying, well, mom really doesn't fill in the blank, talk to him as much, much, play with him much. She doesn't discipline him. She doesn't, you know, they're pointing the finger at mom. And I have said... I think I would be hard pressed to know what to do with that particular child, and you know, I've raised just from an average mother's
1: perspective.
0: Right? I mean, these are not necessarily sometimes they're pretty inherently difficult children, complicated
1: kids. Yes,
0: I'm scratching my head in my one hour to figure out what am I going to do to make this productive and positive. And I think, you know, mm, I I don't know that. most parents would be equipped to know what to do because they are, do not respond typically.
1: Right, and, and, but that is why we have a job. I mean, that right. is our job to figure that out. And I do think when we remind ourselves, you know, he's not normal, he's not typically developing, it is going to be maybe beyond what I'm comfortable with, beyond what I've ever seen, especially earlier in your Early in a career, I mean, after you've got some miles on you, you don't really, you know, you don't always have something you've never seen before. But early on that happens a lot. And you just have to start with the premise of this situation is not normal and I'm probably not going to be able to make it normal. I'm just going to figure out what I can do for this hour and where we can go and look at it from there. We're going to talk about that kind of concept as we get down to whatever the tunnel vision um, resolution is. But I do think the starting with um, that this is not normal, you know, this child is not typically, develop, typically developing does kind of get you started with the right mindset, with, no, it's not going to be perfect, he's not going to be perfect, he's not going to attend, as well as we want him to he's not going to participate as well as we wanted to because if he did he would probably his skills would probably not be where they are i mean there is something disrupted in the process or you would not be there as a therapist so that's kind of a good starting point right yeah for parents all right anything else you want to say about that about not blaming parents i think we did a a, My last point job. is
0: about 15 minutes, so no, <laughs> I think we should go on to the next one.
1: <laughs> okay, this is one that we have talked about and talked about and talked about, and we have eight minutes left until the formal hour is done, but we always seem to go over by at least a few minutes. But this is huge, and boy, I've been talking about this for a long time, but in the last two years since I started doing conferences and Johnny – my husband and my, the other half of teachmetotalk.com dot com has had the privilege of accompanying me to all these conferences. Boy, does he talk about this a lot now too? And he, you know, and again because he shares the website with me and you know everything that teachmetotalk.com dot com is about, it's about he has a hand in, and he recognizes this now and says it's a trend in our profession and in early childhood is that so many people blame behavior for developmental issues and Kate we could probably do a year full of shows just on this one topic but we're we're going to try to boil it down to <laughs> 8 <laughs> minutes <last> okay 7 <laughs> minutes now 7 minutes Late talking is not due to being lazy or stubborn or shy or any other personality difference. It is not due to that. And so many times parents and, oh, my gosh, when a therapist does it, if they're talking to me on the phone, I just want to reach through the phone line and grab them by their shoulders and shake them and say, (laughs) that is not true. Late talking is a developmental skill deficit. It is not due to some kind of personality trait or behavior issue. When kids can talk, they do talk. When they come together and have all of those processes that we talk about, when they come together socially and cognitively and physiologically, and when their little systems mature, they talk. And so we have to get kids to that point. And we have to really stop parents and professionals. This would include teachers and, you know, other family members, grandparents. We, we have to stop people dead in their tracks. The very first time you hear somebody say, well, he's just lazy, He's just stubborn. You have to correct that and say, nope, that's not what this is about. This is a real bona fide developmental issue because when you leave those false beliefs in place, when you just shake your head, when a mom or grandma or dad says he's just lazy, if he wanted to talk, he would, when you leave that in place, they discount the challenges that that child is facing, and they discount, in a way, everything that you want to do for that child professionally because our strategies are um, educational, developmental strategies. They're not really about (laughs) uh, treating behaviors. You know, it's not really, you know, it's not disciplinary therapy. It's speech therapy. It's developmental therapy. You know, we're not there to fix those things because that's not really the problem. And so we have to help parents see late talking as a skill deficit, not something a child is purposefully choosing not to do. And when they say lazy, stubborn, whatever adjective, negative adjective they want to put in there, that's basically what they're saying. They're saying if he could, if he wanted to, he would. And it's I have yet to see a kid that, that, it's, that that's been the case about, because when kids can talk, they do talk. So many people now, too, are trying to talk about selective mutism as the reason that we have late talkers, to get a diagnosis of selective mutism, you have to have normal skills in one setting. And again, if you have a kid on your caseload as an early interventionist, he would not be there if he displayed normal skills in any setting because the parent would not have gotten the referral. The parent wouldn't have, they would have known, okay, he's talking at home, so I'm not going to worry about it yet. It, 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 selective mutism, I do not think happened really, really in the strictest sense of the diagnosis. It does not happen with birth to three. As often as therapists seem to want to talk about that, almost not so much lately, but that first year I did conferences, every conference somebody would talk about selective mutism. And I always say, when is the kid normal? Where does the kid have, well, he doesn't have normal language skills. Well, then he's not, he doesn't have selective mutism. You have, to be, you have to have normal skills at some point to get that diagnosis. So I hope that therapists will just throw that out the window when we're specifically talking about the birth to three population. And the whole. And I know I'm so passionate about this. I call this whole can't versus won't, and there's an article on the website if this is the first time you've listened to our show and you have no idea what I'm talking about the website my website is teachmetotalk.com you can search in the top right hand um corner the search bar there type in can't versus won't and you'll get an article that comes up about that and by that I mean that children it's that children can't talk it's not that they won't talk and you can read more about my philosophical um position On that, But late talking is not a choice that toddlers make. They can't talk or else they would talk. And when you get in there and get all those strategies in place and they do start to talk, you really realize it's not about behavior or, again, a personality trait. And I hate the fact that we try to label a two-year-old as lazy or stubborn, and that might stick their whole little lives, and you do not want to be a part of that. You want to be part of setting them on a different path and talk to parents about the real root of the problem and not letting them stay stuck on thinking that this whole late talking thing is something they're choosing not to do just to drive their parents crazy. Because a lot of parents really kind of think that. Have you heard Mm -hmm. parents talk about that, Kate? Because I've heard it a lot.
0: Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Again, a lot of times it is parents who... (sighs) really are pretty um, good parents. I mean, they're really pretty, they, you know, love their kids and are pretty responsive to their kids, and and yet somehow it's easier to say, well, he, he chooses not to. That's
1: he, less he, difficult. He could, have, you know, he... Yeah. W- oh, what am I trying to say? he, would, he wanted he could he could could. Say back to, yes. the, Yeah, uh-huh. right, right.
0: Sometimes yeah. I think they'd rather rather wrap their hands around or deal with on an emotional level that the child chooses not to. He's difficult, he's spunky, he's, you know, independent, whatever adjective you want to use that allows for he he can, he just chooses not to. And um that, again, that's I try and dispel that myth very early on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I don't believe it either.
1: <laughs> not, yeah. You, nope. And when we if he could yeah, and the important he would. thing is yeah, and when you get parents to change their mindsets, then they start looking for ways to help their child learn how to talk rather than making it about behavior, rather than making it a power struggle. And sometimes, even really pretty good pediatricians will tell parents things that buy into this, like don't give him anything to drink unless he asks you for it, or You know, he has to get, if he wants something, he wants it bad enough. If you just wait long enough, he'll tell you. That Mm -hmm. is not always the case. You know, sometimes I want to say to parents, you know, you need to tell that doctor in about 72 hours, he's going to need to admit him for dehydration. Because (laughs) if you aren't going to give him something to drink until he says it, guess what, you're going to be making an ER visit in about, oh, two, three days because they can't do it. And so when we help parents change their beliefs about that and change, you know, they start to feel a lot of sympathy, a lot of empathy for their sweet little baby who can't communicate instead of thinking, you know, he is the devil incarnate here and he is... (laughs) Just really a bad kid, and is, you know, he is such a stinker, I'm going to break his will, and all those other cliches that we've heard parents say. When they change their minds about that and really start looking for solutions, I mean, you can, it almost guarantees more rapid progress than if you have a parent who's still thinking it's about a power struggle thing. Or if a parent who's kind of blowing it off and deciding, well, one day he's just going to wake up talking in sentences. I just know it. When that doesn't happen either. <laughs> and so you really have to get parents with the right mindset with we're going to work together to find some solutions, find some strategies that work, you know, put language in, make language meaningful so that he is able to, um, start to use some words to communicate if you're at the point that you can work on expressive language. And so you have to really, really talk to parents about that and not let that go on for weeks and months with the parent really blaming it on behavior and blaming it on a personality trait because it is, they almost, when when you let that kind of opinion go, they're almost working against you as far as and and not per se but they're they're not really looking at what the real problem is that it's a bona fide developmental issue that they're going to have to work on they're either blowing it off or they're trying to um you know discipline language in with <laughs> you know withholding and doing all of those things that really probably aren't conducive to uh, a nonverbal child learning how to I've talk. even
0: he- I've even heard some yeah. therapists make that. Not pediatricians make it, I've heard that, but I've also heard some generally speech therapists and I guess I haven't heard them, but I've heard parents quote them and and that that goes hand in hand with uh it's a parenting problem. That's why he's not talking because you give him everything he wants yeah. before he tells you. And they'll well, say, they'll
1: say there's low communicative demands. That's the yeah. whole, that's mm-hmm. the professional way to say, this is your fault, Mom, because you don't make him talk. And right. really, we don't make kids talk. <laughs> Goodness knows I have tried. You cannot make them. You cannot put your hands into their throats and pull those words out. You cannot put your hands on their cheeks and move their mouths to make the words come out. You can't do it. And so sometimes you have to give those kinds of really... Exaggerated analogies, like I just gave, you have to really say that to parents so that they understand and one of the jokes that I do in the conference is I say a lot of times parents will say, I'm going to go into the kitchen and I want you just to wave your magic speech therapy wand, and I want him to be talking by the time I come back because sometimes that's how parents view therapy they don't understand the whole process with kids have to understand they have to be socially connected and they have to understand the words and then We have to get them to the point that they're ready to work on expressive language. They don't understand that whole process and that whole hierarchy. They still sometimes kind of think about therapy as, I don't know what kind of voodoo she's going to do when she gets here, but I just want her to do it because I just want him talking. And so you have to really explain all of those things and explain your strategies so that one, they don't think that you know you've got to kind of demystify this whole therapeutic process, and two, they're not blaming on late talking, blaming late talking, excuse me, on something that it's not about, and it is not about behavior, and it is not about a kid's personality. I uh, you just really don't see toddlers who choose not to talk, and that's not to say that toddlers aren't stinkers, sometimes they are they they do not have the emotional maturity to always respond one hundred percent of the time like we want them to you know who does i'm forty five and don't have that control one hundred percent of the time, and so we really, really, really have to stop blaming behavior and letting parents and other people blame behavior too because they're not focused on the right things when we let those things go and if you're a therapist and believe that kids don't talk because they're lazy or stubborn or bad oh my goodness I just don't even know what to say about that (laughs) I can't believe that because that's absolutely wrong it's false it's a myth is that the word you used earlier Kate it's it's a myth they you know late talking is a true developmental skill deficit it's a delay it's a disorder it's you know it can be a number of things but it's not about being lazy or bad or stubborn
0: and it may and probably is related to that child's developmental issue i mean yeah
1: it is <laughs> it is that's it it's a developmental issue sense. it's not those other things yeah. It's not, it's not the parents. Kids. Yeah, because you it's know not what? Behavior, Even kids, it's not even parents. kids
0: whose yeah. parents are overly responsive and don't ask them to communicate verbally, and even kids whose parents don't pay enough attention to them, or don't read to them daily, or don't fill in the blank, they talk if everything's going right.
1: They totally do. Yeah, mm-hmm. and some, and a lot of times too. I mean, I just want to. I think when therapists. I don't know maybe they've never treated a speech therapist kid or maybe they've never treated you know again a a pediatrician's kid where you think okay this is a mom who knows how to do it and her kid still has these issues it's not about the parents it's not about you know, again, their environment or behavior that this kid has learned that he can, you know, that at 18 months old he gets up and makes a cognitive decision, hey, I am not, I am going to be completely silent today because that is going to drive my mommy crazy and I'm going to get all (laughs) kinds of internal rewards for driving this woman crazy. Kids can't do that. At 18 months old, they can't purposefully choose not to talk. At two years old, they can't really, they can't do that. And so, again, that whole selective mutism thing, unless you know, now I have treated in my career one little girl that that diagnosis was appropriate for, and she talked a lot at home, but she would not open her mouth anywhere else. And I saw her at preschool, and she never talked at preschool, and she got the referral. She never talked in the pediatrician's office. She, you know, and her mom was highly educated, so she was able to, work the system to even get her qualified. With this current day and age, I don't even know if she would qualify for services now. You know what I mean? This Probably was back not. in the good yeah. old days where you could mm-hmm. pretty much you know, clinical judgment, you could qualify a kid.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so she really that diagnosis did fit because I saw her at home. She talked beautifully. She had, you know, longer phrases and sentences Even had some, you know, beginning grammar. You know, she had some plurals and she had some verb endings. I mean, really higher-level stuff that sometimes we don't see in early intervention. And then nothing at preschool. So that was a dramatic difference. And in that kind of case, okay, I'll give you selective mutism with her. But not for a kid who's never said anything in his whole life. You You can't say selective mutism for that kid. Once it's selective? You know, 100% selective all the time? <laughs> you know, that doesn't even make sense. Or have they you have worked very, on
0: it? very, very, very limited vocabulary. You know, they have three words yeah. and somebody's saying, well, if you didn't do everything for this two-and-a-half-year-old or two-year-old, he would be age-appropriate. It's just ridiculous. Right. right. So I always say that there's no way even the best parent could anticipate a typically developing two-year-old's needs and wants because mm-hmm. you know my kids. If I said, "Do you want a drink?" they'd say, "Yeah, I want a drink," and I'd get them a cup, and they'd say, "I don't want that cup.
1: I want yeah. the blue
0: cup. I want or the blue fall cup." fall on
1: with the floor, strong. crying in a heap because you gave them the wrong cup. And when they would finally calm down enough, you would say, "What's wrong?" and they would you right. know, scream, Elmo, cup!" or you know something. <laughs> Again, they may not have been able to say it. Your kids probably talked in those long things, but even kids that are not, you know, that far along verbally, are able to. Again, you know, really, even if they don't have the words, they're really expressing their needs, even with gestures and crying and those other kinds of things, where they're letting you know, boy, you messed up. And again, I, I so appreciate your point about. there's no possible way to anticipate every stinking one of a typically developing toddler's needs because it changes as often as, you know, the the wind can change directions and they change their (laughs) minds about things. They want something new. They want something different. They don't want the same lunch they've had every day for six weeks. They suddenly hate peanut butter and jelly. (laughs)
0: So
1: those things happen too. So there's just. There's just no way. I, I'm on a listserv that I read that the speech pathologist, before the parent came in, she had decided that based on the history that it was a case of low communicative demands because the family was English-speaking and they had uh, Spanish a Spanish-speaking housekeeper and a Spanish, or maybe it had been another language for the nanny. And so she had decided before the kid got in there that that was the problem that Nobody was um really making the kid use enough language or the, you know so that the kid would it was a whole low communicative demands issue and then the kid got there, and she felt like the kid was probably on the spectrum. And mm-hmm. so again, you got to be so careful. All of a sudden, that
0: said, judgments. uh-huh, So there is a problem. Yeah,
1: there's a problem, and it's not related to all the all the other issues that she thought it was based on the history that you got. She actually had to see the kid to make the diagnosis. You know, how about that for? Uh, not you know, to a big, say that uh, it,
0: upon <laughs> closer examination, she might right. probably did make some suggestions that might help. Sure, but really. The problems were inherent with that child. And a typically exactly. developing pro- child would have been speaking English and Spanish or whatever the other language is. Exactly. It would not have been a problem.
1: Right, mm-hmm. and there was something wrong from the get go, most likely. Mm-hmm with that whole situation you're exactly right all right we are well over so we're going to call it a show on this next week join us for the last two resolutions and if you want to take a look at that article yourself and see what uh, we've written or what i've written about this and what we're going to talk about next week you can do that at my website uh, teachmetotalk.com or If you're on Facebook, you can like TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, and the link is right there to take you right to that article on the website. Um, Thanks for a great discussion as usual, Kay.
0: You're welcome. Talk to you soon. All
1: right. We'll do it again next week. Thanks.
0: Okay. Bye. Bye.